Maybe we hire out asset management as well. Uh, but I always like spreading the risk across two, three, maybe four partners so that we all have our own roles. If Caleb's on vacation, someone else can take the lead on asset management and um, we can spread it that way. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Caleb, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you so much for having me. You got it. You got it. Well, you like you know we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Matt, I have to say my favorite ice cream is mint chocolate chip. I love it. So our listeners know that that's the answer typically I give because my father liked it. And uh, he always oh. said that no one likes that. So you should always get that because then no one will ask you to take a bite of their ice cream. But uh, that seems to be a more popular one these days. You're like the fifth guest out of the last 10 I've had that have said that. So uh, did you grow up eating it or did you have a, uh, a father who loved ice cream as well? No, the thing was, I think my dad liked pistachio. Which Yum. if people like pistachio, good on them. I don't. But uh, I think maybe I just picked up the green, fl- the green color of it. I don't know. It tastes good and it has chocolate in it. So I'm a big chocolate guy as well. Yeah. And the best part about it is it keeps you clean breath. Like I'm, I'm always nervous that I'm the guy with the stinky breath. So you'll always see me with like mints or gum with me. Uh, and that's maybe yeah. why I eat mint chocolate chip ice cream. There you go. Yeah. I carry around uh, mint chocolate chip ice cream with me every day. For that reason, there you go. Just in your back pocket, in my back pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell our listeners what's the scoop. What do you do today? So my scoop is I acquire uh, multifamily apartments. We focus on seventy-five plus unit apartments, but uh, I didn't start there. I started in well six years ago, small multifamily. After three years, scaled to focusing on apartments solely. And my first commercial asset, well, technically my first commercial asset was a retail facility that I JV'd on. And then my first apartment was 16 units. And from there we scaled. Gotcha. Gotcha. I guess, take us back. You, you mentioned your first asset was a retail facility. Like how did you get involved with that one? Well, I had sold my first ever property was a fourplex that I lived in one unit, rented out the other three. It was a house hack and rode the appreciation wave in 2018, sold at a, a great price, made a lot of gain on it and rolled, uh, the capital gain through a 1031 and partnered with a couple of partners to acquire this uh, retail facility, which is in Casa Grande, Arizona. It's a population of about 50,000 people, kind of a kind of tertiary and opportunity presented itself. We could get seller financing on it. And I'm somewhat of a silent partner, but um, I was my main role in that was capital. How did you find that deal or how did you find the partners that found that deal? I found the partners. I didn't find the deal. Uh, my partners found it. And the way I found my partner was actually at my first apartment meetup where I had been doing residential for three years. And then I just decided, Hey, I'll just go to this apartment meetup. I always thought it would be cool to start that. And that's where the big boys played. So I knew I would get into that eventually. And my eyes were open, Matt, to the possibilities of apartments, why I should start sooner rather than later. And I met a handful of contacts at that meetup uh, and I met my first partner at that meetup. Gotcha. And tell us about the retail facility. Is it like mixed use? Is it all one retail client? Like, what does that look like? It's a redevelopment and we currently have one lease signed. I think the potential is four to five. 
uh, sections that we have kind of envisioned maybe blocking off and just the way the property is laid out. Uh, it's on a, a good corner in downtown. Uh, we have the plan is to put a brewery in there and we have a salon studio uh, lease signed for that. And uh, we also want to put kind of like a cool outdoor seating area where we can have food trucks in there. Uh, it's shaded maybe with a play pad, uh, a water splash pad, things like that. Really make it um, an inviting environment, especially in this downtown market. There's not really, it's kind of run down. Uh, and so there's, we want to be that uh, property that kind of revitalizes it and maybe sparks that because there's a lot of potential, a lot of demand for if people want to, you know, go to a nice restaurant, they need to drive an hour and a half north. No, it's more like an hour towards Chandler, Arizona. And so we want to kind of be that um, hub to attract people. You guys don't have any Applebee's out that way? No, we do not. <laughs> Just no, we do not. <laughs> that's, that, everybody knows that's where the good restaurant is. I know. I know. Yeah. I don't know what their stock is doing these days, but uh, yeah, I won't talk about it. So I, um, I've, I'll show my ignorance. I've never done any sort of retail, um, mixed use retail redevelopment or anything like that. You're talking about really revitalizing the, uh, space to attract the right tenant, to attract a different kind of clientele. And hopefully that, uh, helps you from a leasing standpoint, I would assume, but like, how does that work? Do you decide that, Hey, this is what we want and we're going to go build that retrofit it and then go find the tenant. Do you find a tenant and then help them retrofit it? Like, what does all that look like? Yeah, good question. And forewarning, I'm not a retail investor. Like I, I know a little bit, I've been on the, the asset management calls, so I'm a little familiar with it. But um, from what I know is we find a tenant and then they will tour the unit. And we actually have a broker that shops around, uh, finds people that want to lease it and they'll tour it and kind of envision what they want to do with it. Right now it's a almost like an empty shell. There's beams in there and, and walls and things like that, but people can tour the asset, envision how they think it would look like if they were to move in there and play, uh, put their place of business in there. And uh, that's kind of the process. And then once we actually uh, sign a lease, that's when we start renovating it uh, and going about that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you went to an apartment meetup and found a retail deal. I guess first question or a question that comes to my mind is what, what attracted you to this investment versus kind of sticking with uh, apartments or residential? Mm. What really turned me on to it was my partner who brought it to me. I trusted him. I had been working with him for about 12 months and very intimately, like we were underwriting deals together. We were partnering on other assets together. And that was uh, the first thing I trusted the sponsor. The next thing was I had just sold this property through a 1031. I had a certain window. I had 45 days to identify three properties. And then I had 135 to actually close one of those or two or three of those. And, uh, I had just found a 16 unit apartment complex that I needed around $300,000 for. And I thought, you know, the timing is right. I had planned on buying that 16 unit with my own capital, but the timing was right where this asset came online, this retail facility. And I thought, well, I can just 1031 buy this retail facility. And at the same time, raise $300,000. That should be simple enough to buy this 16 unit 
so I could get two deals for the price of one if I kind of spread up my capital. And that was really the determining factor for me going ahead. Gotcha. Do you end up buying the 16 unit? I did. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you've got the retail facility. It sounds like you got the 16 unit. What is your, what does your portfolio kind of look like today? I own uh, two 20 units in Las Cruces, New Mexico, a 30 unit in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a 30 unit in Tucson, Arizona. And then we're aggressively pursuing um, now 75 plus units in Texas, Oklahoma, and Arizona. Gotcha. And what do you like about those markets? And I want to dig into the New Mexico one separately. Yeah. Arizona, I live in Phoenix and uh, taxes are property taxes are amazing. Growth is amazing. And insurance is very economical. I mean, $500, $400 per unit, depending on the asset or even less. Compared to Oklahoma, it's funny, I'm spread out because Oklahoma out of all 50 states is the most expensive whenever it comes to insurance premiums on an average. But Oklahoma has a very low basis. We're buying properties for $50,000 per unit, wow. maybe less. Uh, Texas, everybody loves Texas. They have amazing growth. Um, and New Mexico, two reasons we bought that. One was the economic drivers, right? There's a ton of uh, jobs moving there, people moving there, and also less competition. Like I said, everyone's moving to Texas. Everyone loves Arizona and Florida, but not you don't hear many people buying uh, apartment complexes in New Mexico. And since it all had the, the drivers behind it, that's one reason that we moved ahead with it. And also my partner that I was telling you about earlier already owned 60 units there. And it was a nice way for me to kickstart my portfolio and partner with him and then leverage his 60 unit to maybe have some onsite management. Um, before we get into New Mexico, you mentioned Oklahoma has some of the highest insurance, if not the highest, what, uh, I think I've got an idea based off of where I live and what happened a couple of weeks ago, but what, what, uh, what is causing the insurance spikes in Oklahoma right now? Right. It's not, it's not on the coast. So, but what it is hail tornadoes, wind, the big ones, hail, the big ones, hail. Yeah. Yeah. I was, so I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and specifically a city called Hendersonville, uh, and I don't know how widely on the news this was, but we had a tornado here uh, about two weeks ago and I'm not getting like literally a half a mile away from us. Um, wow. And it was uh, definitely a very, very scary thing. Like we were in closets with the kids and laying on top of them in case the tornado came and we didn't want things to hit them in the head and things like that. But uh, yeah, when you said Oklahoma insurance, I'm like, well, it's kind of in tornado alley there. So I can kind of right. see where insurance would be higher. That's exactly right. Um, so New Mexico, very familiar with Albuquerque, I guess, very familiar in the fact that I've heard of Albuquerque. Um, uh, where was the other city you mentioned? Las Cruces, New Mexico. So it's about, gotcha. uh, three hours South of Albuquerque and okay. it's maybe 45 minutes, um, just out of, just outside of El Paso, Texas. Gotcha. So I'm going to show my ignorance here. I know Albuquerque, um, has a very high income. Uh, for that area specifically, because I think Los Alamos is still there. The nuclear facilities that built the A-bomb are still out that way. So like high degree of intelligence, high degree of salary and income and things like that. What, uh, what brought you to the other market there in New Mexico? Yeah, Las Cruces, it, uh, the population was over 100,000. That's kind of a benchmark for us. 
and the economic drivers, it has a college and it has a lots of government workers. There are a lot of other jobs moving there. And uh, I think the last statistic I saw was it has a 1.5% vacancy rate average wow. for apartments and uh, seeing a lot of growth and also kind of where it's placed. It's right outside of El Paso, Texas. So what we do is we fly into El Paso, then go right over to Las Cruces. And it is a pretty um, growth market. Gotcha. And you said over 100,000 people? Yeah, 117. Gotcha. And do you know what the population off the top of your head is growing per year? Because I've never heard of it. I don't. I don't. I know it's growing very steadily. Um, yeah. A couple thousand a year is what I would assume. Maybe a little bit more. Okay. I mean, that's percentage points at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So one of the reasons why you love New Mexico is kind of competition is lower. There are some economic drivers in terms of population growth, good incomes. Sounds like a university always feeds for uh, some potential future job growth there. Um, what are some of the downsides of that market? Yeah, we were talking about this offline. Uh, the It's a blue state. And well, the taxes and insurance are pretty favorable. Uh, property taxes, kind of like Arizona, but it's a blue state and it, it's taken us 13 months to evict someone before. And I think we bought the asset in July of 22. We're in December, almost uh, January of 2024. And we're still waiting to get like $3,000, $4,000 from the government for one of this, uh, like a subsidy program since we bought it. And wow. Yeah, there's, I think in Albuquerque specifically, uh, there's like two sheriffs that are evicting people and there's a hundred uh, eviction requests per day. So it's kind of like fighting an uphill battle and working with the city is, is challenging in general there. Uh, finding contractors is hard. There's kind of like what you alluded to with Albuquerque. There's uh, a higher median household income. And so finding contractors for a decent price is challenging as well. So we've had bids to renovate a two bed, one bath townhome for like $35,000. And uh, the market is more around seven to 10. So we've seen a lot of that, but overall we're happy with it. Uh, again, vacancy is really great. Low vacancy, uh, even with all that uh, against it. I did curiosity. Have you looked at like finding some local contractors in Phoenix and having them go over there to do some renovation work? We actually have one of our partners. He has a connection. Uh, he's out of California and he knows someone in California that uh, is very economic when it comes to painting. And so we're actually going to able to save some money, send this guy out to New Mexico, paint for us. And we actually have a couple of jobs for him. Like he's going to paint three units for us. Then maybe in Las Cruces, then maybe drive up to Albuquerque, paint some more for us. And that is, that's actually going to save us money wow. compared to just hiring someone local. Are you going to fly him out there? Or is he driving? I think he's driving actually. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible that you can go across three States and uh, get better pricing than in a local market. Yeah. I, I guess this guy's that hungry. I don't know if that's a good thing for us. I hope he's good when he actually starts painting, but, uh, I think they've, they've worked together before, so it should work out well. 
Talk about the challenges with the evictions. So um, anybody who's been in this business went through 2020 and 2021 understands the uh, problem that you face there or has at least maybe have a battle wound or two um, from the eviction process. How do you what have you learned through that? And what have you done to kind of proactively get ahead of it for future tenants that you're working with? Yeah, um, well, the problem that we had was we inherited a handful of residents and um, two of those of the 30 units, two of those tenants were bad, meaning one, it took us, I think it took us 10 months to get her out, 13 months to get this other guy out. So we didn't have any control of the leasing process for those residents. And there wasn't really anything we could do with that besides once they stop paying, evict them. Now we can be pretty um, picky on who we actually let into our units. And that's pretty standard with any market, but maybe more so actually looking at uh, whenever it comes to this market, being a little bit extra cautious about who we let in, making sure they have um, no bad credit, uh, felonies, criminal history, and they meet the income requirements. So, and also calling their prior landlord, make sure there's nothing uh, we, they don't put on paper, let's say. And so you can go a little bit extra, but sometimes like we just did have someone that moved in and we're evicting them again. They're three months behind rent. And this lady is, uh, she's put in like 40 work orders within the first week she moved in. Wow. She is harassing our maintenance guy and on and on and on. But she hit all the requirements early on. So sometimes you just, you're never going to yeah. know until you actually yep. get going. It's like anything in business, but you can mitigate and do the best that you can. Have you thought about like having an extra security deposit? So maybe two months rent, three months rent, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, we can. Um, again, it depends on the demand in the market. And also, yep. I don't remember exactly what the laws are there. My property manager would, but what the requirement is for uh, security deposits, again, being blue state, tenant friendly. I don't know. I think there is a requirement about how much deposit we can request, uh, but my manager would know that exactly. Yep. Which is the value of a property management company. When you are across multiple state, like you are, like we are. People always ask me, like, why don't you self-manage or bring that stuff in-house? It's just like, man, I don't want to keep up with the ever-evolving regulations around this space, mm -hmm. specifically as kind of the political line, landscape changes from state to state and all those sorts of things. It's You could be totally compliant in one area, and then you move to a different city or state, and uh, you're non-compliant, and all of a sudden those fines can rack up and legal charges and things like that. Right. Yeah, possibility to get sued, and it's not worth the 3% property management fee. If you have a hundred units, maybe you're making 30 grand a year. It's definitely not worth 30 grand, at least for me, if someone else wants right. to, then good for them, but it's not worth it to me. Right. I mean, at 30 grand, you can't even, well, you probably could, but you can't really even afford to hire somebody to go take care of that. So bringing that in house doesn't even make sense. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, some of your portfolio when we were kind of chatting is, um, it's on the commercial side, but it's not like 250 units, 100 units and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Just peeking behind the curtain here in this business, there is a scale factor in place, right? The more units you can acquire, you get economics of scale and that sort of thing. It also gets easier to raise funds because the when you boost NOI across 200 units, 
it gives you a little bit more flexibility to pay out preferred returns and things like that. Um, talk to us a little bit about like the things you're seeing in your portfolio where there's 16 or 30 units. And now that you're underwriting deals like 75 units and above, how that changes your perspective of whether you bring on preferred equity, whether you bring on JV partners, whether you go out and raise capital from investors itself. Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you would like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Right. That's a great question. Whenever you're first starting off, if you have been only in residential and you just want to get your first apartment building uh, closed, then I always tell people start small and then work up from there. It takes about the same amount of work to buy 16 units as it does 100. Yes, you do need to raise more capital. Uh, there is a little bit more work that goes into it. But for the most part, if you just buy uh, some smaller apartment complexes, you'll learn tools that you can take to actually buy larger properties. Now, the big thing to look out for is vacancy. Um, whenever you buy like 16 units, our break-even point is three or four units compared to a hundred unit apartment complex. We have a lot more flexibility there. Uh, whenever it comes to pref equity, mezzanine debt, they're not really interested in our 16 unit apartment complex. Usually the, the biggest, the smallest check they want to write is 5 million or 3 million, depending on who you talk to. Um, so it does, help whenever you're actually acquiring a larger asset to, uh, because then you have access to more preferred equity and uh, things of that nature. But to start off, if you do a JV, like my first 16 unit was a JV and we had three partners into it. They all brought a hundred and they have their own individual roles as well. But, uh, and the difference with the syndication is a $20,000 attorney fee to draft up a PPM and uh, make sure it's syndication compliant. So that's, um, and then the last thing I'll say to that, Matt, is I experienced this when I was trying to buy another 16 unit and I took it to my sponsor, who's worth 30, 40, 50 million. And it's not worth his time, mm -hmm. right? He's gonna make 170 grand. And whenever we sell, that's the equity he's gonna receive. And it's just not worth his time. Yeah. If he, even if he raises, 300, 400,000, you know, the, the returns that they're looking for on the equity side is half a million or larger. And whenever you're dealing with that small of an asset, let's say 30, 40 units, there might not be enough meat on the bone for a sponsor who is really worth it to work with, to partner with you. Um, yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts going on in my head right now. I'll start with the sponsor to work with. Um, when you're getting into some of these loans, you do need some sort of KP on most of these docs. A KP for our listeners out there is a key principle. Usually they bring a net worth to or a balance sheet to the deal that says, hey, we've got somebody that has a significant net worth to kind of help us cover the debt if things were to go awry. 
Um, when you're looking at something that's like five, $10 million, I don't know if your net worth is that, but um, if it's not, how do you go about solving that challenge? You would have to find another partner that yeah. is worth five to 10 million. Do you face that challenge in some of these like 30 or 40 unit deals? A lot of the times I've always been an advocate of spreading the risk. So even if I could qualify for the loan, then I would want to have other people on my team. Depends on the asset, depends on the circumstance, right? In my own position. But I am an advocate of having three, four uh, JPs or GPs on even a small deal, you know, there is yes, a point whenever it doesn't become economic for me, it's not worth my time. So if it is worth my time, maybe we have three partners on a 40 unit apartment complex, our payday once uh, we sell is 200 grand, and it's worth my time to actually do that. And maybe we hire out asset management as well. Uh, but I always like spreading the risk across two, three, maybe four partners, so that we all have our own roles. If Caleb's on vacation, someone else can take the lead on asset management and um, we can spread it that way. Got it. Got it. And then in terms of debt, are you typically going to local banks for this? Are you be able to secure agency debt? What does the debt position look like for some of your properties today? Most of the time, we do go with regional banks uh, or credit unions, more banks that are local so that we can get more favorable terms. Uh, and if you have relationships built up with banks that are like that and uh, leverage that, right? We'll still work with the mortgage uh, broker to get some other quotes as well, seeing what they're coming in at. And I've had it flip-flopped where brokers, they're less economic compared to a regional bank, but I've also had it where certain banks, certain regional banks, their terms are less favorable compared to what a mortgage broker can find for me. Um, that's why it's just good to have several uh, resources in your back pocket so that you can, whenever the time comes and you find that hidden gem, you can actually move on it and have the connections to do so. Agreed. I, um, I think most of our listeners know I'm a big fan of whole life policies. Um, one of the reason being is the ability to go leverage against them. Um, when 2020 and 2021 was happening and my cost of capital was five for my policies, people were like, you're stupid cost from a bank is two and a half. As we ventured early into 2023 with some of the banking instabilities we saw, as well as an ever-changing landscape right now, it's important that you have diversified debt pools that you can go pull on to do deals. What I hate seeing um, with a lot of my peers in this group is like, hey, I work with this one bank and they've been great partners with us for five to seven years. And I'm like, that's great. But what if they have a problem? Now you've kind of have a single point of failure in your business. And it's always important to have multiple relationships at multiple different levels for the things that you're doing, I guess, is what I'm trying that's to say. Right. Uh, and I haven't heard of that whole life strategy. Uh, you want to nerd out on it real quick? If you, yeah, if you can, it's your show. So you tell me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically I'm a big fan of finding assets that you can borrow against to go have your money working in two places. So the simplest way to think about this is a heat lock, a home equity line of credit. Mm -hmm. I bought a house for a hundred thousand dollars. Now it's worth $200,000. My debt used to be $80,000 through the years. It's $60,000. I have that equity that I can go tap into. Well, the beauty about that is I'm not selling the asset to get access to that equity. 
I'm borrowing against that asset. I still own that equity. I'm just borrowing against it, using it as collateral to go deploy it somewhere else. That's how you can go scale your portfolio is by borrowing against things. Traditional finance would teach you, hey, you have some stocks. You want to buy a house, sell your stocks, go buy the house. However, what most people don't know is you can borrow against your stocks to buy the house. Now, you do have to pay an interest percentage, but there's a cost of money associated with everything you do, whether it's an actual cost or an opportunity cost. So I like whole life policies because whole life policies, when structured properly, um, give me first right of refusal. They are hidden off my balance sheet from debt protectors and sometimes student loan applications, depending on how they're structured, things like that. And I've got kids, so that's something that I care about. And I can go borrow against it at any time. Now, the best part about it is one, it is contractually obligated that the company has to lend to me first if it's structured properly, because I am a shareholder in a mass mutual company um, that basically like you get first right of refusal. The second thing is it's not on an AM schedule. So basically I can play interest. I can play interest plus principal. I cannot pay that loan for a year um, if for some reason cash flow streams get disrupted. So I get the ability to structure my own debt um, with these types of policies. Now, last thing I'll say about that, just to make sure I communicate this appropriately, you do have to pay it sometime, right? Either one or two things are going to happen if you don't pay back the loan at all. One, you will die. It's going to happen. And when that happens, they pull that money back from the death benefit. So that's how they're protected in this is like, you're going to die. We, we already owe you a million dollars when you die. Well, if you take out a $100,000 loan, never pay us back, then we're just going to pay you $900,000 when you die. Or mm. the policy will lapse, meaning that you you started off at a hundred thousand dollar loan, you failed to pay that for twenty years. It went from one hundred to one hundred five to one hundred ten to one hundred twenty to one hundred twenty, and it lapses. The the and and that's a bad position to be in. So that is a little bit risky, but it's a foreseeable risk. So I hope I kind of talk through this idea of like how you borrow against assets. I think really, really matters. It does not have to be a whole life policy. It could be a heat lock. It could be your stock portfolio. It could be old equipment that you own if you run a bakery or some sort of um, big equipment business. But that's how you can have your money working in two different places. Wow. That's very smart. I, I haven't heard of that before. I've heard of people with HELOCs and they'll try to do something with that. And um, But the thing with a HELOC is that the bank can pull it at any time. Correct. So I think that's, that's smart that you do that. Correct. I learned something today. That's great. Good. And and look, I've got personal lines of credit with several banks, right? So those are just an agreement between the bank and I that says, I've been banking with you for a while. You should not have to have a collateral uh, to lend to me. My, your collateral is the fact that my credit is with you and you can go harm my credit if I don't pay you back. So it's an unstructured line of credit, uh, similar to a credit card. However, the big point that you just mentioned is at any point they can pull that. And if you really peel the onion behind Dave Ramsey's story and why he's so risk adverse or debt, uh, debt adverse is because exactly that. What he was doing is opening up heat. He would buy a house, renovate it, take out the equity through a heat lock, buy the next house. And he got to a point where he had several millions of dollars out against those loans and the bank sold and the, the new bank owners were like, hey, why do we have all this money out with this guy on his policies? Like 
are on his homes, uh, let's close those down because we don't like that anymore. And so basically he had to come up with millions and millions of dollars within 30 days. And even somebody who is as wealthy and successful as he is today, that's pretty hard to do from a liquidity standpoint. So yeah, yeah. I, wow, I, I don't like the idea of a bank controlling when I have to pay back or if they could close the account at any point. I don't either. Yeah, it's very risky. Yeah. So um, sorry for the long tirade there. I appreciate you kind of let me go through that, though. I love talking about oh, thanks. that. thanks. I was geeking out. Different stuff. But tell me, um, so you've got some stuff now. Um, what does the future look like for Caleb? Take me forward five to seven years. Where do you think you are? Five to seven years? Well, I, I got into this business... Um, you know, for non-monetary reasons, right? I want to uh, do more mission trips and spend more time with family and of course, scale the business, acquire more properties and focus on larger assets. I also have a passion for teaching people and I own a consulting company that educates people how to buy their first apartment complex. And that is really fun because I get to see people that would they were like me. They had rentals and then they wanted to scale and actually buy their apartment complex and uh, actually make a true dent on generational wealth for their family. So love to have 500 units, uh, be able to take a step back. So buy more property, work less and help more people to put it simply. Got it. And then what's the, you're a pretty young guy. Like what's the, what's the end goal? What's the 30 year goal here? 30 year goal. Uh, well, I'm 20, about to be 26, um, 30, when I'm 30 years old, I don't know where I'll be. <laughs> I don't know where I'll be. Um, yeah, be living in Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know, wherever God has me, I guess. Yeah, oh, I'll tell you this. At 26, I certainly wasn't buying apartment complexes. So you are far ahead of the game. And that's okay that, that you don't know where you'll end up as long as you're going in the right direction. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Caleb, I, I appreciate the time. I want to switch us now to our last round. We call this the four toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's giving you a paradigm shift? The book I've read oh, recently, I would say, is The $100 Million Leads by Alex yeah. Ramosi. If you, you are watch a webinar? marketing... No, I did not watch a webinar. No, I did not watch it. Um, but a fantastic book. It talks about social media. Start posting on social media. But that is a, a book if you are selling yourself a brand which we all are, if we're in the space and raising capital, then read that book. Yeah. Um, I didn't make the webinar when he posted it, but he placed the replay and man, the, what he pulled off there was pretty impressive. Um, and definitely a guy who uh, I look up to from a value standpoint of like, if you help enough people, the money will follow. Mm -hmm. Right. Did he have a webinar for that? I'm not I didn't know. Yeah. So, so when he first launched the book, he did this webinar on Saturday um, and he basically broke the internet. I mean, he had something like 800,000 people on this one webinar. Um, wow. And uh, he goes through the book, some of the strategies, talks about it. And you think you're about to get pitched hard. And at the end, there's a nice little special surprise on kind of him giving away things. So he went on this big podcast tour, like saying, it's more than a Starbucks gift card. It's less than a Tesla is what the gift I'm going to give everybody who joins this. <laughs> and so everybody's kind of waiting. And then he sets it up like he's about to pitch you pretty hard because he's like, this value is eight ninety five. This value is $400,000. This value, yada, yada. 
Um, but he has a nice little ending there. Oh, fun. Well, you didn't tell me what it is. So now I'm on suspense. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's the secret of the hundred million dollar leads is you set it up, but you don't tell people. <laughs> wow. There you go. <laughs> Our second one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Best piece of advice I've ever received. I would say since we're on the topic, starting an apartment sooner rather than later, or at least if you know what your goal is, I love rental properties. You can make a lot of mon money with rental properties, but at the same time, a good deal, if you buy a rental is $200 a, a month in cash flow, which I don't know about you, but that does not really make that big of a dent in my uh, expenses or way I want to live my life. Now, if you truly want generational wealth, then start bigger. Go with mobile home parks, uh, hotels, uh, apartments, something that actually makes a significant dent in uh, cash flow and also generational wealth and uh, your take home at the end of the day. Yeah, I uh, I reached that point too where I'm like, man, I started counting on my fingers and toes and anything I could find that said, how many of these single family homes am I going to have to buy in order to get to the goals that I have? And it's ultimately when I switched into commercial real estate. There you go. That's right. Our third thing, our third topping is what are you most proud of in your life? Hmm. Um, gosh, I would say, uh, serving at church. I serve with uh, seventh grade boys at my church and man, just being able to spend time with them. And again, I didn't get into this business for monetary purposes. Of course I'm in here to get paid. Right. But at the same time to have the freedom to do what I want when I want with who I want. And volunteering, helping other people, um, serving Christ, man, there's, there's nothing better um, in life. Because if you don't know where you're going to go when the light shut off, then that's something you need to know. Because I've done the math and we'll be, a lot, we'll be dead a lot longer than we will be alive. So that's what I'd say. Yeah, it doesn't take, uh, doesn't take a lot of math to get to that answer either, does it? <laughs> no. No, probably the easiest calculation in my spreadsheet out there. Yeah. Our fourth and final one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Hmm. I'd say Jesus Christ, because then I could have more ice cream and he could just make more ice cream. Um, but to be able to talk to him, man, I mean that I don't even, it would leave me speechless even thinking about that opportunity. So that's who I would say. Infinite amounts of mint chocolate chip ice cream served in that conversation. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Caleb, uh, fantastic conversation. I appreciate you coming on and talking through um, some of your investment strategies and some of the, the goods and the bads of uh, the markets that you serve and the asset classes that you have today. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, though, and learn more about you or just get connected, where is the best place we could point them? I would say LinkedIn um, or Instagram, just check out Red Sea Capital and or Caleb Johnson and find me there. And uh, I'm very active in the DMs. So uh, just send me a DM and let's talk. Perfect. We will link those in the show notes. And then Caleb, thanks for coming on. Matt, I appreciate the opportunity. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. 